Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Saul Griffith. Saul's the founder of Other Lab, which is an independent research and design lab that pairs creativity and rigor with innovations in sustainable energy and robotics. Saul's an intimidating fellow. He is a MacArthur fellow, literally. He was named a MacArthur genius back in 2007. He He's a big guy with this Australian accent, and he's had his hands in more birthing of companies than I can even count. He's also quite outspoken with his views, and he's a prolific writer on climate change and Green New Deal and a number of other topics. But we had a great conversation. I learned a lot, and he's a super nice guy. One caveat is that we lost the file, actually, from an audio standpoint. So we took the video and converted it to audio, which means that the quality won't be nearly as good as what you're used to on this podcast. But it was too valuable a discussion to miss, and so we didn't want to throw it away, and we we took what we could. We covered a number of topics in this episode, including Saul's background and what led him down the path of running Other Lab. We talked about the Other Lab model and the combination of working with government for grants and private financing. We also talked about Saul's views on climate change, how to think about it, and also how to think about solutions, including some ideas that Saul is giving away for free on how we might be able to have the greatest impact on the problem. And Saul actually also had some great advice for anyone out there who's concerned about climate change and trying to figure out how to help. I enjoyed this episode a lot, and I hope you do as well. Saul Griffith, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, actually, I'm always here. Great to have you here. Yeah, thank you for hosting. Other Lab is in a former organ factory, right? We are in the home of the sh- former home of the Schoenstein Pipe Organ Company that were in this building from 1926 until 2011. Uh-huh. And in a truth is stranger than fiction story, they didn't shut down in 2011 because the pipe organ industry was fading, which is what you might think casually. But the Mormon church is growing so fast and then Mormons, they love their pipe organs that they actually had to move to Benicia to expand threefold (laughs) to keep up with pipe organ demand. So there you go. Uh, Well, it's a real treat to be here. I I have to say that I feel like I'm in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or something. We have a pretty fun workshop and we are working on a lot of interesting things, mostly energy. Everyone comes here and is like, oh, you have the funnest work ever. And I always sort of recoil because it does, I think, if you arrive for the first time, feel like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. But if you're Charlie, you have to pay all the employees and you have to make all the chocolate. So it feels like work. <laughs> well, just have them. What, what if I would eat the blueberry or something where you wish you turn into the big blueberry? That's and, right. Yeah. Careful, what we, careful what I feed you today. <laughs> well, first, just uh, thank you because you, I don't know if you know this, but you got me into boosted boards because you had your boosted board at a food oh, camp wow. event a few years ago. It was the very first one that I'd been on. I'd seen one live once before, but I'd never ridden one. So I rode yours and I bought one. And I use it almost every day at home. So in Boston. I, electric skateboards, totally for the win. And I don't know when you want me to start devolving into anecdotes, but I could begin now if you wish. How about it? So I know this is a show about your journey into climate change and energy. I'm like... How did you know this? I didn't even tell you on the air. 
I read the first couple of lines of the email. I admit not reading to the end, so I didn't know it was 9 a.m. and I didn't know it was this morning, but I did know what it was about. So I'm chronically data-driven and I'm in the middle of analysis right now of all of this micro-mobility. I can't believe I even know that's what the genre is called. So all the scooters, booster boards, all the stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you include the energy cost of making the scooter or the board or the pair of sneakers or the bicycle or the car, you'd like to do an all-in energy cost or carbon cost of all of the transportation modes. Right. Turns out that most of those scooters do less than 100 miles before they're thrown in a lake or a river or broken. And because the miles are so low, they never amortize their production cost, and they probably have the equivalent mileage of a gasoline SUV. So, wow. That is actually illustrative. Which is to say, if you're riding your boosted board, it is amazing and can be the lowest cost, but you have to do 2,000 or more miles on it before it starts to count. I wonder what I've actually done, but it's got to be pushing that. I use it a lot. There you go. Well, yeah. you're, you're an excellent citizen. Uh, but uh, so I'm, as you know, I'm on this climate journey. I'm talking to lots of people. And one of the tricky things I've found, especially as someone who hasn't been deep in this world for long and doesn't have much training in the scientific underpinnings that are required to understand a lot of this stuff, is that you read something and it's like, oh, so that's going to inform our worldview. But then... You talk to someone else and it's like, well, but that's not considering this and this and that and that and that. And if you actually considered all those things, that thing is bunk. And you hear that and I feel like you're the guy who the things I read will tell me all the reasons it's bunk, like you just did about the micro This is the right? debunking yeah. episode. All right, let's go. <laughs> Give me all the things you want me to debunk. Here I am. Yeah. So I feel like whatever worldview I end up with or listeners end up with as we collectively are trying to get more informed about climate change because we care about the planet, it wouldn't be properly pressure tested if we didn't pay a visit to other lab, and that's why I'm here. There you go. I feel yeah. good about that. Yeah. And the only other thing, just as an aside, and then we'll get into the meat, I promise, listeners, is that in 1996, I did a semester abroad at UNSW in Sydney, Australia. Yo, UNSW. <laughs> we don't have a beaver or anything, so no, no, there's no mascot. But you were studying there at that time, right? I finished in 94. Oh, Wait. so I just missed you. No, I would have finished in 96. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. We, we might have crossed paths. I wouldn't have remembered it. I had a wonderful time there. Um, <laughs> it I wasn't the, particularly lucid. We were in the metallurgy <laughs> building, which was the building closest to the university bar. Uh-huh. So you probably saw me on the way to the bar at the bottom of the campus. Did you ever go to the Could You Be Hotel? A lot. Me too. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Also, oh, oh, those were the days. Night, a late night visit to the Sydney Harbour Casino. That was the, that was probably the year I was first uh, arrested for protesting. I oh, know the years before, first arrested for protesting climate change. Oh well, tell me about that. So, whoa, actually, let's take a step back. When did you start caring, and why did you start caring? I always cared about the environment because I grew up in all of Australia's national parks. And we have basically Australia is a, a wilderness and it's fabulous. So if you want, there's the Great Barrier Reef and all sorts of temperate rainforests and incredible things to see. And my mother was a wildlife artist, so every summer holiday for me was in a hide somewhere in the wilderness trying to get photographs of some endangered species and or watching sea turtles nest on islands in the middle of the Pacific. So I had this David Attenborough-esque childhood like I lived planet Earth. And so I think you grow up with a save the whales mentality. And then I went to engineering school and because I like making stuff, if you like engineering, it means you can solve problems, fix things. And once I got to engineering school, started to 
this is a little bit after James Hansen's testimony. So climate change was starting to get fringe public acceptance. So if you were in the fringe of the general public, you might be aware of it. And I was aware of it and because I was in engineering school. I was learning to read science and understand it. So you were getting a master's at the time? Undergrad. Okay. And then, so it seemed fairly natural for me to, if you care about the coral reefs and the plants and the animals, you sort of need to worry about climate change. So mm-hmm. perfectly honest, I think there's, there's an interesting set of people, I think, at the moment who wish to solve climate change because they like humans and they'd like humans to prosper. There's people who'd like to solve climate change for different reasons. I'm kind of in the camp of, I like humans a little bit, but I'd really like Earth to be interesting enough for humans to want to live there because of the animals. So that's kind of what motivates me. Got it. So if you had to choose between humans and animals, other than yourself, you would choose animals, it sounds like. No, I would choose a mix of humans and animals where we try to make the animals thrive because I think we are still learning how codependent we are on the biosphere. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot of people who sort of they've only grown up in big cities that don't really have a personal relationship with the natural world. They don't sort of viscerally understand how the waves at the beach oxygenate the ocean and how all the creatures do their bit in the ecosystem that supports life and that because of that, I think we can solve climate change. We don't really need the monkeys. We don't really need the great mammals. We don't really need the coral reefs. But I think we actually do. Uh-huh. One tricky thing is that so things I'm reading are saying that actually on a per capita basis, we want to lower emissions. We should ship everybody into the cities, right? And if we ship everybody into the cities, they're going to have even less awareness for the planet as you're describing. So first, you agree that putting people in the cities is better for the planet from a carbon footprint standpoint. And if so, how can we do that but still retain people's connection to nature? So step one, our cities better. I don't think... Anyone who's honest can definitively say that city dwellers are lower carbon than non-city dwellers. The origin. So that's debunk number one of this. The origin of this, yeah, the origin of this argument was papers that were written trying to prove that people in New York living in New York was better than living in Omaha. Mm -hmm. The methodology of that study was to take the population of a state and divide it by the energy that you could see measurably used in that state. So New York doesn't produce a huge amount of its power and has a very high population. So if you divide one by the other, it looks great on paper. If you go and have a look at the list of those states, it turns out that Texas people look like they're terrible, but not as bad as Alaskans and not as bad as people from Wyoming and not as bad as people from Texas. The reason that is true is because most of the fossil fuels are produced in Alaska and Wyoming and these places. So there's a small population and a huge amount of fossil fuels produced. So if you divide the energy produced in that state by the population, it looks like they're terrible people. But the reality is those studies weren't counting the imports into New York City of the energy produced in Indiana or Alaska. So it's not a good analysis. So you have to start then wondering, is it really better to live in a city than not? And then if you go further down that rat hole, you start to look at it more and then you could run the thought experiment. Can a city support itself? And turns out 
San Francisco to cover the energy budget of everyone in living in San Francisco would have to be 100% covered with high-efficiency solar cells. So cities have no opportunity when the population density gets to about the population density of San Francisco, which I think is about 8,000 people a square mile. New York City is about 20,000 for context. Most of suburban America is two and a half to 4,000 people a square mile. Rural is lower. Anyway, about, once you get to about 8,000 people a square mile at the energy levels that Americans enjoy, the city just can't produce it in any practical way. There's not enough rooftops to put the solar on, not enough places to put the wind turbines. So then you have to denude some place somewhere else to put the solar cells or put the wind turbines or put the nuclear power plant to produce the energy and the goods for those cities. And so is that better than a model, say, of... Turns out it may be a population density of 2,500 to 4,000, which is the suburbs. The homes are big enough that they could produce enough energy to cover all of the energy use of the household. So I've never loved the suburbs. Grew up in the suburbs, which I think wherever you grow up, you then want the other. So I kind of fetishized either rural existence or city existence because I grew up in the suburbs. You were a tweener. I was a tweener. But it's unclear for sure that the suburbs may not be in a universe where you've just acknowledged that humans are going to have some amount of impact and that we want to live a certain way, mm-hmm. that at least you can do distributed energy in that population density type way that can work out. Mm-hmm. So I think there's sort of a couple of points here. It's not obvious that people in cities use less energy. In fact, they probably don't. The easiest proxy for the energy impact of an individual is their income. Cities are mostly people with higher incomes, so it's very likely that they have a higher carbon output. Just to illustrate a few things that people know, 3% of the energy used by Americans is Russian natural gas that is producing IKEA furniture and BMWs in Western Europe that we purchase. So those people in New York don't sort of see that as energy. It's not measured in their energy input, but it is in their carbon footprint. Probably 10% of Americans' carbon footprint is crap made in China. People in New York consume more of that. So the jury is out exactly on that, and I think you need to be wary of it. So then I think you need to instead look for, well, what are models I can construct in my mind that are net carbon zero for all of the different places people could live? And honestly, Saul, I feel like I could point at any topic within decarbonization. So we just talked about cities, for example, but there's hundreds of them because decarbonization touches everything. And you could go deep into, it seems like, any one of them, given that we have a finite amount of time, I think there's a couple things I want to make sure we cover while we're here. One is that you've been very vocal about climate change and your concern about it, as well as potential solutions and debunking, and you've got strong opinions. I want to make sure that those come out so that any listener can both benefit from your perspective, but also just be informed about your perspective so that they can factor it in to their perspective forming. That's one, is that making sure we leave with your perspective being clear, right? The other one, though, is that Other Lab does a ton of shit. Right. And so some of it is climate focused, some of it is not, but you're very vocal about climate change. And so just understanding what other lab is doing and what are the criteria for projects and then how that ties in to the things you're so vocal about. That'd be another key takeaway that'd be great to get out. And then I think the third is just advice for people trying to sort through all the noise because more and more people are getting turned on to the fact that essentially we're in a crisis. But they don't know what to do. They don't know where to start. They feel paralyzed. Either they're going to put their head in the sand or they're like going to lay sleepless at night. 
feeling like we're doomed, but actually neither of those is helpful. Action is helpful, but they don't know how to act or what to do. So I think those three things. That sound good? All right, let's sweep our lab under the rug quickly then. And then Q&A might be difficult to get my opinion, so then I might do monologue where you interject. How about that? Uh, sounds good, and I won't be shy. Okay. So we're, we're flipping the table then. So you're going to drive the discussion. I'll drive. Um, scary for me. I, I that's, I was. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Obviously, I've had that's my third coffee of the morning, which is a terrible one. Mine too. Oh, that's not a good combination. I actually was up sleepless last night, which is probably also why I'm impatient because I was doing back of the envelope con calculations of if we made every purchasing decision correctly from this point out, what sort of climate outcome do we get? Uh-huh. So, like. We'll come back to that, but I think that will be... Do you want to tackle Other Lab first? Yeah, let's do about Other Lab. So Other Lab is an independent company, privately held. We do research and development. Our main focus is to move the needle on energy and climate change. So I think as a single entity, we've got more RPE research awards than nearly anyone. We're tiny. We're like 50 people, but we do as much work in that advanced research projects. But you don't include all the companies that have spun out of here in that in that 50 people, right? So that the actual number is much bigger in terms no, of the, so the tentacles of other labs. Yeah, yeah, other labs' tentacles is now like a 1,000 people with 10 companies um, doing everything from, we have a couple of plays in solar, we've got uh, plays in hydrogen storage, other energy storage, air conditioning, thermally adaptive materials. So anyway, our model is that we do this early research. We try to focus most of it on energy, but we also do R&D for DARPA and the DOD. And because we have an interest in robotics and industrial automation, I could tell you a long story why that is also part of the answer for climate change. And in fact, our solar company that's crushing it is selling tons and tons of gigawatts of solar Actually, the technology started on not a Department of Energy grant, but on a Department of Defense research grant. Anyway, once we do the R&D and convince ourselves that the technology is real and the market is real, then we spin up and out companies that go and focus on delivering that technology to the marketplace. And one of the ones that's doing really well right now is Sunfolding, which does solar tracking. So the majority of industrial Solar is actually tracked on one axis to follow the sun from morning to night, and we build the lowest cost tracking device. So we're now installing some large number of megawatts per week of that technology. So we are, Other Lab's mandate really is to focus on energy problems that address at least 1% of climate change. So we won't, we don't really aim at working on things that are working on problems that are small and what percentage of your work is the contract work that you're describing versus stuff that you're baking from zero in-house in reality you always have to bake something from zero before you can convince the government to run a research program to fund it Uh so the first quarter million dollars of anything we do is spent internally kind of proving the math and the physics that we then I think a lot of people misunderstand how government funding works. They think that the government knows what it wants and asks for it. The reality is that the government is full of very smart people who kind of have a general idea, but they are smart enough to know that they don't know everything and they don't know what's possible. So they sort of solicit ideas through things called requests for information, Mm -hmm. where you say, oh, you might not know this, but this is totally possible because of this development in material science and this development in 
control theory. Therefore, that enables this new possibility in offshore wind power, for example. And then these government agencies take in that input and then they start programs that look like the thing you told them was possible. So it's not so much that you're answering a call for something they already wanted. It's more that you are informing what is possible and suggesting that this is a good pathway for American R&D money. And then you go and do that work. Is that a consistent other lab playbook where you put the other lab capital in a little bit to incubate the science and then go get a grant from the government as the next step? We are always playing the game. It feels two to four years in advance. But the government's always involved in some way. Silicon Valley wants to pretend that it invented everything. Everything that's being commercialized in Silicon Valley today was funded on government grants 10 to 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. AI, autonomous cars, all of these things you know, photovoltaics, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things were heavily funded by the government 10 or 20 years ago and are now doing mainstream stuff. So we are working on where those things were 10 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, but every other lab project, the goal is to get it funded by the government early in its journey. No, no, every, every other lab's project's goal is to make technology that moves the needle on climate change come into the market as fast as possible, mm-hmm. given that venture capitalists are conservative and they have capital return timelines that look like seven years, they won't typically play early enough in the R&D process Mm -hmm. to fund you. Mm -hmm. So the reality is that the government is our best seed investor. And in fact, the taxpayer should be enormously proud. The government has been the seed investor in all of the technologies that Silicon Valley is now turning into money-making machines. And what's the criteria that you use to determine... I mean, it sounds like there's a bit of mad science that goes into it, but then there's also some... some mad criteria. science is an oxymoron. Let's just kill uh-huh. mad science. Mad science was invented basically by Rick Moranis in the 70s or 80s to uh-huh. undermine public trust in scientists. Uh-huh. By definition, a scientist uses reason. It's like the opposite of madness. So we don't do any mad science. We do science and math, and then we target things that are reasonable and necessary, and then we do them. There's no mm-hmm. madness. But you're not an incremental guy. Is that a fair statement? We don't. We try not to do a lot of incremental things because incremental things are done really well by big companies with large balance sheets. Mm-hmm. They can beat you at them. We, to compete, have to do things that are disruptive. Mm-hmm. Got it. And as defined by what? Well, if somebody's already doing it, we won't try to beat them because we're not a marketing organization and we won't beat them in a competition for wallets and mines of something that already exists. Mm-hmm. But we can see an opportunity. Typically, we will not work on a project unless we can point to an equation that we understand better than everyone else mm-hmm. that suggests that we have a fundamental advantage based in physics. And if we do, we will then work on making that into a technology. And then since you work in a bunch of different areas, is direct domain experience in each area required? And if so, is that something that you have on staff in-house or you work with a a network of domain experts you can plug in? How do you get the right skills to the table for the wide array of things that you do? I have a strong faith in physics. And if you know the physics well, you can figure it out. But I think we don't have to have quite unquote domain experience to start on something, but we immediately try to hire domain experience to help us in product market fit. So we can imagine a new product that has a whole bunch of advantages, but very quickly you realize that you need to 
hire people with domain experience to shape what scale does that into the market, in which niche of the market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we had started the work on Sunfolding and were sort of proceeding slowly. And then we hired Layla Madrone, who had experience in both robotics and in the solar tracking industry. And she said, well, I think you've got the nugget of an idea here, but really it was her industry experience and perspective that shaped the product to be the right product. Mm-hmm. And that's true in nearly everything we've ever done. And then how do you think about the return profile long term in terms of their science risk, there's time horizon risk, and then there's return upside. What profile is the right one for other labs, or does it depend on the project? Our portfolio looks very good and like we're succeeding and winning. But Would you have longer time horizons than a VC, for example? Yeah, we have 10 to 20-year timelines. 10 to 20-year, and then... I can imagine yeah. things today that VCs won't fund for six straight years, and I can easily compartmentalize those in my head as things that I need to tickle the underbelly of the Department of Energy, convince them that this is worth funding, have the patience to wait two or three years for them to put in the first dollar, mm-hmm. three to four years to do the research to turn that into a technology, another couple of years to turn that from a technology into a product, then raise venture capital, then go out in the market, and you... Honestly, if you want to do full ticket from conception to commercialization, you need to be able to, and you you need to be able to think on those timelines. Otherwise, all the technology. If you don't think like that, you have to take technology off the shelf and try and shoehorn it into, into a new market. And there's a couple of this versus that. I, I I think might be fun. Um, how do you think about innovation versus policy in the climate change fight? We have everything we need. It's all policy, but innovation can make it better. There's no this versus that. If you're going to, I, the, this versus that game with me is going to be terribly unsatisfying and it's going to be this and that. <laughs> but it sounds like you're focused mostly on innovation. How do you make sure that the policy landscape adapts or, or do you shy away from things with high regulatory risk in the near term? Solving climate change today is illegal throughout the world. Mm-hmm. We literally have 100 years of laws and crud, building codes, speed limits, etc etc fire codes that are anathema to solving climate change so you are naive if you don't believe that solving climate change is both an innovation and a technology but just as much a policy game and so i bipartisan way work with both sides trying to lobby the groups and inform them about what is possible and what policy changes needed to be made if you really wish to make this happen i go to dc for two days next week to do exactly that and spend time in Sacramento doing that and do a lot of writing for an audience that is policymakers. And what about startups versus, like, what's the role of the big hydrocarbon companies, for example? How do you think about them? I have a new crazy idea that we can't solve climate change without engaging large hydrocarbon companies. Mm-hmm. And we have to, this is going to be the great Faustian bargain of achieving a climate goal that we want. So at some time in the late 19th century, fossil fuel companies stumbled across the idea of a thing called proven reserves. Proven reserves is where they can put on their balance sheet fossil fuels they haven't yet dug up. Mm-hmm. Um, I really am interested, if, anyone, if any of your listeners know, can identify for me the first um, financialization of fossil fuel reserves. I'd love to know what that reference is. Wait, so this actually, so we've done, I think it'll be like the 13th or 14th episode, but this is the first request that any guest has put out to the listeners. 
wouldn't it be great if we could actually return some value to a guest instead of just extracting value? So here's the crazy idea. The proven reserves on the balance sheets of the world's top 100 fossil fuel companies are more than enough to hit three degrees plus. So we have to leave the majority of it in the ground. Mm -hmm. It is a misunderstanding to think that fossil fuel companies are operations companies. They're mostly banks. Like the Shells, the BPs, the Chevrons are mostly banks. They have maybe small operations, but a huge number of their operations are done by other companies. So they are banks that are using their proven reserves, which gives them a market cap, which they can have a multiple on, to have enough capital to deploy to deliver fossil fuels. There's, it's extremely hard for me to imagine, given that basically none of them should pull any more fossil fuels out of the ground, that they're all just going to roll over and say, we're going to write off our entire value. And it's just leaving money on the table, if it not. Right, but then them are us. I guarantee that in ways you don't even know, your various investments and other bank accounts that you're running, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are enmeshed with their finances. So the problem, so they are very capital efficient, basically banks that know how to do risk assessment and investment on energy. They just happen to be experts in fossil fuels. The challenge of renewables and the electrification of all of the stuff which needs to happen for us to solve climate change is that it's all high upfront capital projects. So buying an electric car upfront is more expensive. Energy is much, much cheaper than gasoline. Buying an electric heat pump upfront to heat your home is much more expensive than natural gas, but it's a high COP heat pump and you're, you're doing radiant heating, it's more efficient and you'll save energy over the lifetime. Same with solar very high upfront cost, and then the energy is free once you're putting solar on your roof. So I think the Grand Faustian bargain is a government basically absolving the fossil fuel companies or maybe even purchasing from the fossil fuel companies their proven reserve assets to give them a capital injection that they can then use to finance the rollout that we need for renewables. That's cool. And that may sound insane, but there are already companies that I don't think they've quite got there yet and they're hypocritical and they are basically they've got hundred years of fossil fuel experience. But like I see Shell stumbling towards this. And I see other big fossil entities sort of stumbling towards this. So on startups versus the rest of the world, you know, I think the startups can be as optimistic as they want about solving climate change, but on the timeline that we need to deploy, we need to roll things out, on the timeline that we need to finance the solutions, we need everyone and all of the capital. So for the people that say we should divest from fossil fuel, what do you say to them? Yes, and. Can you elaborate? Well, I think divesting from them is going to have a very marginal impact on their proven reserves assets. So they will still exist. So divestment isn't enough. Divestment is a signal. It's a nice little protest. It's something that can make you feel good. But I think you should start wrestling with the notion that you're going to be part of a political grand bargain. Let's play fantasy football here. A Democrat wins 2020 on a platform that says fossil interests. Here's a solution where you kind of get a little bit of market monopoly into the future in exchange for turning your capital towards renewables and keeping your proven reserves in the ground. Crazy, unimaginable, bipartisan 
solution to the climate change, which was something America would have been capable of in 1939 or 40. Doesn't seem so today, but it's my best idea for how a new bipartisan climate solution could emerge. So should the big hydrocarbon companies or the individuals that were at the helm during that high-emitting time where they knew and withheld, etc., should they be held accountable for their actions, and if so, in what form? I don't know how. I think they should be strung up by their testicles because uh, they're mostly old white men and, you know, publicly flagellated, but I don't think that helps. We try. We could try. It would certainly make a lot of us feel good. When you read, for example, every year BP publishes their Global Energy Review, it's 40 years of cynicism. If you go back and read this annual energy review, this year, finally, they're talking about the possibility. It's like they've had some great awakening and now magically all of a sudden it's possible to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. But they held on for 40 years writing objectionable bullshit in those reports to make it sound like it was too impossible because they, in some respects, that report is part of their PR for keeping their share price high enough to continue playing the game that they were playing. And, and there, I mean, there's mandates, there's cap and trade, there's a price, there's a carbon tax, there's a revenue neutral carbon tax. There's all these different ways that I haven't even mentioned or thought of or understand yet. But what do you think would be most effective in terms of accelerating this transition? Well, I just gave you my best crazy idea. The transition is here and maybe it's game over. You know, if you want to ask my position on a carbon tax, I'm in favor of everything that moves the needle, and a carbon tax may move the needle. I actually believe by the time you have a carbon tax implemented, mm-hmm. it's irrelevant. So solar tracking devices to solar projects that are bidding at you know 25 year contracts at under three cents a kilowatt. It's just the cheapest energy that is out there. The Department of Energy's own forecasting through 2030 for the cost of solar has it been two cents a kilowatt hour industrially three cents commercially and five cents residential five mm-hmm. cents a kilowatt hour in australia today um you can install solar at a dollar 20 a watt for the capital cost that financed for 20 years translates at six to seven cents per kilowatt hour there's no energy source that is that cheap in australia so that is to say Solar, it's very, very hard to imagine anything being as cheap as solar five to ten years from now. Problem with it, though, is like in that industrial solar at two cents, so I sell electricity through the sun folding as a proxy through the projects they do to PG&E, Pacific Gas Electric, for three cents a kilowatt hour. The building that we're sitting in this morning where I pay the electricity bill here, we pay PG&E 24 cents a kilowatt hour for the electricity that I produced for them in the Central Valley. Why, you would ask, right? 12 cents of the cost of the electricity in this building is the transmission and distribution cost. Mm -hmm. So if I can tell you in Australia, because of deregulation of the solar installation market and job training programs and other things, they managed to get the cost of rooftop solar to six or seven cents a kilowatt. America, rooftop solar is still 20 to 30 cents a kilowatt hour because of a whole bunch of silly reasons mostly policy and legislative reasons. This is one of the things, like I said, solving climate today is illegal, and climate change is illegal in America. But if you got rooftop solar in America to the same price it is in Australia, six or seven cents a kilowatt hour, I would not bother trying to 
go through PG&E to get that solar made in the desert delivered here to San Francisco. I would just put the solar on the roof of this building. I have applied to the city of San Francisco to put solar on the roof of this building, more than enough to supply all of our operations and you know, 20 homes surrounding us. We're 18 months into that process. Because this is a historic building, the city has sent our application to the city attorney. That's terrible news. That means almost certainly it's a no, at which point I will have to sue the city of San Francisco for favouring history over the future. But, like, as an example of, we have all of this baggage legislation that's preventing us from doing the right things. I think there's no better example. Well... I've read some of your writing on, you talk about electrifying everything, and then you kind of go sector by sector and say, this one's 6%, and that one's 18%, and that one's this and that. And it's, I'm not sure who the audience is, but I know personally, I read it, and one, it's just a lot for my pea brain to try to get my head around. But then two, I just don't know where to start or how to help. And so I guess one question is, for people like me that are feeling that way, that they might be a lawyer, they might be a doctor, they might be an investor, they like they're, they're doing something that's not energy focused, right? Like, what's their role in this transition? Like, should they just go about doing what they're doing? Is it just voting and then hoping for the best? Like, what do we need from them or me? So I've been super wonkish so far, so let's bring it back down from wonk level. Maybe I'll just explain why I'm wonkish. So I've been, I wouldn't say a skeptic, but I always like to read the original source. So I read the article, New York, people in New York use less energy than people in Omaha, and I want to understand if that's true or not. So I've been looking at energy data for two decades, in fact, so much that we actually got paid by the Department of Energy last year to try to produce the highest resolution mapping of the flows of energies through the US energy economy ever produced. Just a Sankey diagram. Did I say that right? We use a Sankey diagram as the way to see how that energy is transformed. So mm-hmm. it's that was diagram. incredible what you built. That's, and, awesome. that's great. So I can, tell, I can tell you crazy details like sewerage treatment is 0.1% of the energy flow in the US and the energy to run meat processing slaughterhouses is a quarter of a percent of US energy flow. Half a percent of US energy flow is powering the trains to move the coal from the coal mines to the thing. So I have that dizzying array of numbers, which is probably the thing that confuses you and is like, oh, that leaves me paralyzed because that's all of these lines. It's like reading drawdown. It's like, oh, like, oh, like, well, you could do this, you could do that, you could do this. And it's like, okay, now I understand all the problem areas, but I don't know how to immobilize at all. Right. Yeah. So, or, or even if it's my job. So yeah. I did all, I've done all that deep research and this year I'm sort of dedicating to figuring out how to distill that for the public. And maybe I should work backwards from the simplest possible answer to your question then I'll add more detail. Mm-hmm. So the simplest possible answer to, to that question is if you can remotely afford it, the next time you buy a car it has to be electric. The next time you replace your furnace it has to be with an electric heat pump. The next time you have shingles put on your roof you put photovoltaics on the roof instead. If you're have a spare $100,000 that you are otherwise going to invest in your children's retirement fund, you should just buy all of these things today. And for around about $100,000, for all of the things that you directly control as a consumer, meaning you have a sort of one-to-one relationship with the fossil fuel, about $100,000 will buy you a decarbonized life. So buy an electric car, electrify everything in your life, electrify your heat, electric cars, electric furnace, electrify 
your hot water heater, electrify your stove, and put solar on your earth. So should someone create like a virtual gift box called Decarbonized Life with a price tag on it that has all of those things? It's like a kit. I think there's a much more interesting and much bigger idea than that. Let's hear it. So the first market in the world where it's economically sane for you to decarbonize completely is probably Australia and a couple of remote Pacific Islands. Here's why. They have good solar resource. They figured out how to get rid of the red tape so that rooftop solar is super cheap. They've got high retail gasoline prices, high retail natural gas prices, um, and high retail electricity prices. So average Australian family spend about $8,000 a year on fossil fuels, buying gasoline for the car, buying natural gas to heat their home, buying electricity from the grid. For about $15,000, you can buy them the solar cell that powers all of those things. For the difference between the price of a gasoline car and an electric car, which is about 10 grand, the price of the battery, you buy the two 10 grand batteries for that, those cars for that household, and then you spend about $20,000 buying them electric heat pump for the heating, electric heat pump for the water heating, and electric stove range. So you add all those things up, and that's maybe fifty dollars to $100,000 expense for that household. After which, if you could finance that at their home mortgage interest rate, like four or five percent, the payments on that interest rate would be about four to five thousand dollars a year. So they'd be saving three to four thousand dollars a year. So it looks like it pencils. You should a bank in Australia, in fact, I've had conversations with the heads of two out of four of the largest Australian banks, convincing them that they needed to make a financial product which was a green refinance or a climate mortgage, if you like. So you're I think what I'm hearing from you is that the role of the consumer or one role of the consumer is to do the stuff to decarbonize their own situation, but then the role of either the government or the private sector or some combination of the two is to come up with the products that help facilitate that and make the math work for that consumer. Yes. And even better, I can actually point at energy markets where this is always this is already true and already possible. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a race between Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and California to be the first state where this is true in America. Mm-hmm. If you were a policymaker, you'd be looking to figure out how to make rooftop solar not cost three dollars twenty a watt, as it does in America, but how to follow Australia's lead and make it cost a dollar twenty a watt, and then you'd figure out how to motivate those other two pieces, and then you'd figure out, you know. The mortgage itself was an invention of the 20th century. We invented auto financing in the 1920s because Henry Ford ran out of people who could pay cash for cars. So Alfred P. Sloan invented the mortgage or the car loan for General Motors. General Motors immediately leapt ahead of Ford in market value because all of a sudden people could afford to own the car. In 1940, we started to adopt that model of financing to build homes for the people coming home from World War II. That's what gave us the explosion of the American suburbs was the invention of the home mortgage. And that was built on the back of inventing the concepts of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and government-backed mortgages. So maybe all we need to solve climate change is to invent a new financial product and to start a new Fannie Mae which is the government-backed guarantee of the financing for American homes to be able to afford to do this decarbonizing transition, which is the easy things, which is electrify your transport, electrify your heat, and put solar on your roof. 
pair that with the same creative genius that did some of the most successful anti-smoking campaigns, right? And I think you're really onto something. Because it's like you get the product, but then you get the messaging in a way that's really going to mobilize people. And then you just spread the word and educate and make it an aspirational thing for people to do. Yeah, look, I abhor what I'm about to tell you because I, I'm, I'm a technology, I'm a nerd, I'm a science and engineering nerd, love technology. But like the solution to climate change at this point is a financial product. And you can imagine the 20th century without a whole bunch of the technologies that we invented. But you can't imagine... Like, I think the, the invention of the auto financing loan and the home mortgage and the popularization of those two things in 20th century America, without those two things, America wouldn't look at all like it does. They were hugely important to everything that the 20th century was. And so we now need something like that to enable this new capital-intensive conversion to renewables, which is then very low energy cost thereafter. So what role does Silicon Valley have in this fight? Or what role should they have? I'm at my nadir of appreciation for Silicon Valley. I feel like we've spent 25 years figuring out how to advertise video games to children. And like it's, it's super unclear. We can now deliver plastic made in China via Amazon to your door in under 24 hours. But it's, it's not clear that Silicon Valley has anything to boast about in succeeding as climate change. And what they've really done is just made us perfect advertised to constantly, delivered to constantly consumers. So hopefully they would recognize they have that blood in their hands and then they would understand what we need to do and Silicon Valley would go out there and do some crazy fintech, Bitcoin-backed financing model for decarbonizing your life or whatever it is. And they would actually throw down significant capital and invest in all the technology improvements we need to make solar and wind and everything else get better. And in order to make that happen, you probably, what Silicon Valley needs to do is change its venture financing model from one that has to do returns in 7 to 10 years to one that has to do returns in 15 to 20. Is that the only difference between effective financing for the type of innovation we need and the current venture model is time horizons, or are there others? There's others. Long answer, don't have all the answers. I don't think we're very good at financing clean tech. I mean, in some ways, hearing you talk, it sounds like Working with Silicon Valley is a bit like working with a hydrocarbon company. It's like, yeah, like they, they haven't necessarily been good stewards towards helping solve this problem and in some ways have been actively making it worse. But at the same time, we could sure use their help because they've got a bunch of expertise that if mobilized and deployed properly could be quite impactful. If yeah, Silicon Valley has taken the best minds of our generation and made them use brain and cognitive science to help you purchase shit faster. Yeah, that's looking backwards, but they're still right. the best minds of our generation. They're still the best yeah. minds of our generation. So what you really need to do is to re-motivate Silicon Valley to motivate the best minds of our generation to work on the things that actually allows us to have an ongoing civilization. But I don't see that happening yet. Mm-hmm. And do you think when allocating dollars, is it essentially, is it required to be concessionary in terms of strictly financial returns to focus on the most impactful stuff? I'm going to avoid that question with a monologue, <laughs> if that's okay. And it will make sense why I avoided that question. So I'm going to DC next week. I'm trying to go to DC and I'm meeting with think tanks from both sides of the aisle to describe what in reality a Green New Deal needs to look like to hit a one and a half or two degree climate target. What it needs to look like in terms of the underlying policies to fill in the, the missing color. Even less 
policy-based. So we have an unfortunate history that we went straight from climate scientists who said this is the problem to economists who used some top-down econometric analysis to say we need to reduce emissions here and here and here. Unfortunately, those economists started with the 1970s, oh, if we use efficiency, we can solve climate change. But you can't efficiency your way to success, right? You can't make... Even with 150 mile per gallon cars, if they're still burning gallons of oil, it doesn't get you to zero carbon. So we sort of, for a couple of reasons, that we handed it to economists and then we had this efficiency model left over from some Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon legacy from the oil embargo days. We weren't thinking about... Put your sweater on. Put your sweater on. We weren't thinking about this as a giant transition with substitution technologies. You have to think about it as a substitution. Substitute electric cars substitute electric heat pumps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because of that, we, no one, all of the climate responses that we hear about in the media look like these weird, abstract, top-down economic things. So what if instead you said, okay, what do I need to do and just take a country because it's easy to imagine as a country. Let's take America because roughly the whole world aspires to have an American quality of life or at least middle-class American life. What do you need to do to give Americans the same quality of life, the same privileges or commodities, if you like, but have them in with substitution technologies that get us to zero carbon. And that looks like you have to, there's 120 to 136 million housing units you need to put solar on the roof of every time. One of them, you need, there's 253 million personally owned vehicles. That's everything from Honda Civics to F-350s. We have to replace all those 250 million vehicles or the majority of them either with things driven by biofuels or hydrogen or more likely electric. You have to replace the furnace in 136 million homes with a heat pump or with a biofuel furnace. You have to replace all the hot water heaters. You have to replace the stoves, right? Then you say, well, let's think about all those things. We purchase cars. The average car in the US lasts 13 years. The average hot water heater lasts 11 years. The average stove lasts 13 years. I'm looking this up. There's a, we keep a, there government, America is incredible. It has the best statistics on all this sort of crap. The government gives incredible statistics. The average 85% of American homes have asphalt shingle roofs, and they are on average replaced every 15 or 16 years, and you have all these things. So if you then said to yourself... At every single purchasing decision from today, 2019 forward, let's say 2020, from 2020 forward, so we have one year to warm up to this idea, from 2020 forward, every time a roof needs to be replaced in the US, we put solar on it. Every time a furnace needs to be replaced in America, you put in an electric heat pump instead of a natural gas powered boiler. And this is the government in a form of some type of mandate? Let's imagine this is consumers because we figured out a policy that enables consumers to afford it. Okay, so carrot instead of stick. Like, if you do it, then you get... Imagine that I care about the coral reefs more than I care about Milton Friedman and arguments of whether this is the government with a stick or the market with a carrot. Yeah. No, I know you do, but but still most people don't. Right. Yeah. Anyway, but if you do... I don't know if they ever will, which is, like, really deeply upsetting. Yeah, I was deeply upset because the answer to that question is if we made every single purchasing decision at the next replacement opportunity correctly starting in 2020, we have about a 50-50 chance of hitting the Paris climate goals. Mm -hmm. So that's, like, every 
decision. That's not like an adoption rate. The early adopters start slowly, right? So we're 20 years in from Tesla's popularization of the electric vehicle, and we have 2% something adoption. <laughs> but we need to, like, do this. It needs to look like World War Two, where we turned all of American industry. So this Green New Deal analogy is wrong. Actually, Senator Warren is the first of the new candidates. I'm glad you're bringing this up because you, you, you talked about... Green New Deal and proponent, and then you talked about how Warren's policy proposals are actually much better. I don't know that her policy proposals are better, but I suspect they are, because all of the policy proposals that all of these candidates put forward are pretty slim. But they're like policy targets, maybe you might call them. But what Senator Warren has done that the other candidates have failed to do, the Green New Deal was not popular when it was done, nor did it really solve the unemployment problem coming out of the Great Depression. If you look at the time... Trace. The New Deal. The New Deal. The original New Deal. Yeah. Original New Deal didn't really solve the problem. World War II is what put America back to work. And World War II is because we were making what is known as war materials, airplanes, tanks, jeeps, guns, bullets, for all people. Sorry, that's my dog trying to, <laughs> trying to make... Or, or we're not editing that out. <laughs> yeah. That's the charm that exactly. other lab brings. Factory, you got the dog banging on the door. I can't believe I think my wife can use... A hundred skateboards in the entrance. It's true. Anyway, the original New Deal didn't really solve the unemployment problem. America's retooling and manufacture under cost-plus contracts. So we invented the cost-plus contract. Mm -hmm. So any manufacturer who could make anything was given a guaranteed cost-plus 7% profit. In fact, it was called patriotism plus 7% <laughs> to manufacture these war materials. If we did that kind of turnaround, and Senator Warren uses that analogy to talk about the engineering problem of producing enough decarbonized technologies, and then she uses the moonshot as the science project to try and put new options on the table. To borrow a term from Google X. Wait, I think I think they may have borrowed it from someone else. I can't. I just we should, we should check the history of that. The Siri. And when did the term moonshot originally come up? We should just let the dog in and he can be on camera. Let's do it. And he might chew on me, but that'll make the video more charming. Yes, this is Loki the Wonder Dog. This is my lap dog, Loki. He was meant to be 30 pounds, he's now 50. 25% extra dog. No, it cost. Anyway, Senator Warren has the, at least has the metaphors right. The moonshot and the war effort simultaneously to hit a climate target that's mm -hmm. only reasonable. So I, I think what I'm hearing from you is that if you only look at near-term returns, like the it's kind of again like the hydrocarbon companies, they reallocate everything, everything towards clean in the long term is necessary, but in the short term is not necessarily in their economic interest. Whereas, like, if you take the Silicon Valley or that... Uh, in, the, that in the short right? term, it's yeah. in the interest of the American consumer. Yeah. I believe strongly that if we did the right electrification, consumers starting tomorrow would pay less for their total energy costs, and they would live a better life with better health outcomes because we wouldn't have... We wouldn't be burning fossil fuels inside your house, and you wouldn't be breathing in fossil fuels inside every... Road to the highway. From an investment dollar standpoint, it sounds like in the long term, it's a smart 
Money in the short term, it might be concessionary in some regard, but it's essential to get to the long term. Yeah, we'll come back to buy this anyway. Yeah, but the only yeah. difference between that short term yeah. and long term is the interest rate that you assume. If you're going to make consumers' finances on their credit card at 9%, it's mm-hmm. not economic. Mm-hmm. If you can build the financing instrument that finance this at 4% because it's backed by Green Fanny, mm-hmm. then it's economic now. Well, last question, Saul, which is just if you had $100 billion and you could put it towards anything to have a maximum impact on the climate fight, uh, where would you put it and how would you allocate it? $90 billion as the seed funding for our green mortgage refinancing company. And then the other $10 billion would invest in, we need a better way to convert biomass into a carbon negative or a net zero carbon biofuel. We need to figure out how to make plastics without going through olefins and producing nitrous oxide. So I think 10 or 15% of our remaining carbon budget will be consumed merely by the production of disposable plastics. So you have got to solve a couple of those problems. Let's put a couple of billion of serious dollars into investing in fusion, where the rule should be you're not allowed to invest in anyone who's older than 32. As they say in physics, progress is made one death at a time. And that would get you close. Anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for our guests? And before you answer that, I just want to say that you you talked at the beginning at the beginning about ruffling a bunch of feathers and things like that, but this was this was a pretty pretty PG rated discussion, I would say. Well, we, you didn't ask me to have explicit opinions on any particular thing, and we mostly talked about finance, which your readers should then like, or your listeners should be like, who's this technologist guy who's knowing anything about economics and finance, which they would be right. So if we went back and looked at the details and energy flows and, and questions like New York, I'm sure I could be a contrarian asshole. But like, I'm optimistic. It is still possible to solve climate change, and I strongly believe that if we did it, everyone on Earth would be living better and etc but the reality is we like I think I tried to put an exclamation mark on it if we make every single purchasing decision correctly starting next year humanity barely gets a climate outcome that's tolerable so it's like we have to do something beyond the free market whether that's incentive whether that's mandate whether it's creative financing it has to be something that's not happening today well, Saul, thank you for all the work that you're doing on this topic, both with Overlap and in Washington and, and other places. And also, thanks for taking the time to come on the show and educate me and our listeners. Sure. Thank you very much. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.